Hey everybody, it's the Vertiguys Show. I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we are the aforementioned Vertiguys. Yeah, we're here to check out the dark side of DC. We're going to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Now, which of those comics got Constantines in them? Uh, that would be Hellblazer. <laughs> oh, okay. But Sandman too sometimes, right? Yeah, occasionally. Had a Constantine in the last week. Yeah, yeah, that's right, we did. But this week... We're looking at uh, Hellblazer issues 23 and 24. Right to the tap, as it were. Yeah. That's the most reliable source for Constantines. So we don't need to recap a ton of what just went down in Hellblazer. We just came off a big story arc called The Fear Machine. Yeah. And there were some fairly world-shaking ramifications for John's personal life, certainly. But the main upshot of it is that, you know, he had a big adventure with a lot of people... And that adventure is now over. Yeah. It seemed like he had maybe lost his memory at the end of the Fear Machine. But now we know that that was not the case. Yeah, well, yeah, he seems to be in possession of his faculties. So... As much as he ever is. So the Family Man is definitely a story arc, and issue 23 is definitely the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. But it's really kind of a standalone issue. Yeah, that's true. It has one major effect that carries over and sets up what's going to happen in The Family Man. But this issue is basically its own story. John steals someone's house. It's a bit more complicated than that. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk about the credits for this issue because they're a little unusual. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about Hellblazer number 23 here, Larger Than Life. It's written by Jamie Delano with breakdowns by Dean Motter, art by Ron Tyner. Yeah, and Tom Zuido on colors. Yeah, now Ron Tyner will be taking over as the full artist on the book next issue. Can you explain to our listeners what breakdowns means? If I'm not mistaken, the breakdowns mean that he essentially designed the layout of the pages, the panel layouts. Right. Yeah, and Dean Motter has not been the regular artist on this series. So maybe he got as far as breakdowns and then had to leave for some reason? Could be. Now we have seen him before, I think. Okay, Dean Motter worked on the Hellblazer Annual the Bloody Saint. Now, if I'm not mistaken, his work in that was to illustrate the music video for Mucus Membrane's song, uh, Venus of the Hard Cell. Oh, right! Which was the backup story in that annual. Yeah! I remember that bit. You know, you can find that video online. Somebody made the video using the imagery that had been set forth? Well, they just used the panels. Oh, okay. Okay. So nobody went to the trouble of shooting all that weird shit. No, but they did go to the trouble of singing the song. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. That's cool. I wonder if they ever got Matt Ryan to do that song. Oh, that would be cool. He, You know, he's uh, the Constantine show is over, but yeah. he's still showing up on Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah, I had heard that. And in addition, I believe Matt Ryan voiced the character for a couple of animated movies. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Dark, Dark Justice League. Yeah. Justice. Dark. Dark, as I call it. Dark, Dark Justice League Dark. Things are really getting dim. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the cover is by Kent Williams. This time, we have John's eyes peering from behind a drawing of a face on a page, uh, which is also scrolled with text. Much more better. So, page one finds John in a truck. Or a lorry, I guess you might call it. (laughs) You could say that. It's been three weeks since they fished John out of the ocean, and he is hitchhiking back to London. Yeah, and he mentions here that they missed a chance to remake the world. Right. We had a chance to write a beautiful future, but we were too slow and stupid. 
basically that when the dragons appeared at the end of Fear Machine, they could have really changed things instead of just kind of neutralizing each other and flying off. Exactly. Um, but that didn't happen, and the world is basically the way we found it at the beginning of this story arc. Except that John is no longer wanted for murder-ish. Well, he's going to act like he's kind of on the lam for the next couple issues anyway. Yeah, he's still kind of hiding out. So we have a somewhat difficult-to-detect two-page spread here for pages two and three. Hmm. Yeah, now John is walking through a small town, which I believe is Brighton. Yeah. He said, here's my turnoff, and it was for Northampton. Okay. He says he knows a gaudy character who lives here. And as he approaches a place, we see a sign that says Admiral Benbow. Now, he doesn't remember it right away, but that's the inn from Treasure Island. Yes, yes. But as soon as he gets close, the sign shifts to say Abner and Benton for sale. Just a hallucination, I guess. Now, he says basically that he needs to make some money, and you have to know some characters to make some money. So he's on his way to his friend Jerry's. And as he approaches, he hears a tapping behind him. Right, he is being tailed by an old blind man. Now, when we say Jerry, his name is, in fact, Jehoshaphat P. O'Flynn, antiquarian and obscure commodities broker. Jerry for short. Now, as Jerry opens the door to let Constantine in, the uh, blind man who was trailing behind him, and Constantine weirdly had a feeling that there was someone behind him, but then for some reason decides that there isn't. Right. When he approaches the door, Jerry's two angry dogs react, but uh, Jerry calls them off when he recognizes John's voice. Yeah, and he asks if Constantine is sure that he's alone, uh, and Constantine says yes. But As a corpse in the swimming pool, mate. But he actually isn't, and when the door comes open, the blind man lunges forward and sticks a note into Jerry's mouth. What's the or, line? No, I'm sorry, into his hand. <laughs> Yeah, what happens with the blind man here is going to be remarkably similar to what happened to the broken man about four issues ago. Right, because immediately after depositing the note in Jerry's hand, not in his mouth, he flees and is hit by a car. Yeah, now, what was the description from the James Bond series, Warger, or Varger? He described somebody as having remarkably lazy spycraft. That's what John is showing here. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair cop. Now, the old blind guy is hit by a car, but when they look, there's no corpse. Which John takes rather calmly. Nobody here, chum. Looks like you're a lucky day. Jerry invites John in and says, Help yourself, you bastard. You've sealed my doom. You may as well drink my grog. As John follows Jerry into the house, he notes that Jerry's specialty is deals of all kinds. Doesn't really care what he's dealing in, just likes to make deals. Yeah, and there is shit piled up all over the place. Yeah, now as they walk into the study... The study is just full of amazing stuff, including the Drink Me bottle from Alice in Wonderland, the stone in which the sword was stuck, and the Ozymandias statue from the poem. Also, a coffin that appears to belong to either Dracula or Batman. Does Batman just rise out of a bat symbol coffin? <laughs> I suppose he would have to. If he's a vampire. <laughs> in stories where Batman is a vampire, this coffin would be appropriate. <laughs> They're going to rise from an unadorned coffin. Yeah, this is a really nice half page showing us all this detail of the study. Now, Jerry explains what he said earlier about John sealing his doom. The old blind man was Blind Pew, also from Treasure Island, and he gave Jerry the black spot, the pirate's omen of death. In the background, as Jerry explains this, 
the picture of Dorian Gray is visible. Yeah, now John basically thinks he's going on about nothing, but decides not to cut him off because he thinks the real truth will come out if he just lets him talk enough. Jury is a kind of a character. He's dressed for an African safari and he's got a big scraggly beard. Looks kind of a lot like Patrick Rothfuss. A great big bushy beard! <laughs> so what John is here to try to do, actually, is to try selling some of his demon blood. Well, I've got a drop of demon blood, and I want some money. Straight to the point, John got the demon blood back in Hellblazer number 8 when he got a transfusion from the demon Nurgle so that he could get back on his feet and go do some questionably good stuff. Sex stuff. Yeah, well, that's... <laughs> Sex. You say it that way, but it's abs that's absolutely what it was. Sex. <laughs> he had some sex. Now, when John mentions a standard pharmaceutical solution, Jerry freaks out, starts railing against writers, and throws several books in the fire. Them, the scribbling, sneaking parasites, the pale leeches who worm their way into your acquaintance, pretending friendship. They fill their pens from your vital juices, sucking up your experience, then smear it wantonly across the wall of these crumbling asylums called books. I tell you, John, they're scum, worse than Birkin hair. They don't even wait until you're dead before stealing your life and opening it to the public gaze. Writers, worst kind of vampires, bastards. But I'm not a writer, Jerry. Jerry apologizes and explains what he's so mad about that several of his writer friends have put him in their books. John says basically you can't blame them since Jerry acts just like a gothic drama character. And as they're talking about this, John is kneeling to pull a fragment of a page labeled Necronomicon out of the fire and read with intrigue. Constantine asks what pharmaceutical solutions have got to do with anything. Jerry explains that the other day a man visited to buy some cocaine, and he mentioned that he likes to inject it as a standard pharmaceutical solution. That's clearly Sherlock Holmes. Right, this man is obviously Sherlock Holmes. It's at this point that Jerry drops the line, Shit, I'm doing it again. I can't help it. Life's much more fun if you pretend it's fiction. Yeah, now in the flashback, Holmes goes on to explain that Jerry is breaking the laws of fiction, because fictional characters aren't allowed to exist in the flesh unless they're out of copyright. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes, I forgot. <laughs> He's describing when Sherlock Holmes shows up and he says, I had scarce completed my toilet. <laughs> Which doesn't refer to actually using the toilet, but rather means your morning hygienic routine. Right. Well, Holmes's ride shows up, and it's Watson, of course. And as they part, Watson has a good line here. Pay no mind to him, sir. He's a harmless fanatic. The cocaine deludes him into believing he's a master detective. Now, John's not 100% convinced, but he remembers the Admiral Benbow. Right. And John is also sitting next to a large piece of wood labeled Pequod. Believe everything, doubt everything. I keep an open mind, mate. I also like Jerry's line here as he finishes the story. I drew blood from my lip, making sure I wasn't dreaming. Anyway, John thinks the best way to solve this problem is to go out and get drunk. He's probably right. That seems to be how he solves most of his problems, and he's a comic book hero. Jerry is reluctant to go out and get drunk, but then the phone rings. The voice on the line promises to huff and puff and blow the house down and commences to doing so. Yeah, that's right. Now they grab the dogs and Vamoose. Come on, Cerberus. What's the other one called? Cerberus. Stops me mixing them up. Now, as they flee, Constantine starts putting things together. I'm winging it, he says, but it sounds plausible. 
Steady, Jerry. You've got to keep a sense of perspective. Don't get too involved. That's the trouble. Your ego's built you a mythic personality, trapped you in a limbo between fact and fantasy. All these writers putting you in their books have blurred the edges more. Now more people think you're a work of fiction than knew you as a man. Now Jerry senses someone watching them, and then a mustached man in Nike-branded bike shorts drops out of a tree. Yeah, and he quickly applies jungle law to the two Cerberuses. Right, the two Cerberuses attack. He picks one up and just chucks him into the distance uh, in kind of an amazing panel. Quickly bites into the skull of the other one and kills him. And then the first dog is back, so he kills that one too. Yeah, by prying its jaw apart. John says, run or die, and then we see them standing there and not running, just alone on the hill here. I get the impression that they ran off while the dogs were being killed. All right. By this monkey man type guy. Yeah, John recognizes the attacker as bearing the clear tones and physical perfection of British aristocracy. He's referring to Viscount Greystoke, a.k.a. Tarzan. Well, that explains that. They find their way into a pub called the Caxton Arms. Visible in the pub are a brunette and seven dwarfs. And John and Jerry sit at the bar next to a drunk Scandinavian with a thick accent. No, you will drunk with me, Pless. Right, he begins to tell his story. My father was a good man, a strong man. It must have been poison they kill him with. My uncle did it so he could sleep on my mother. I hate them. Do you think I'm mad? Depressed, maybe. Another drunk? My girlfriend went mad. She drowned. She was beautiful. I loved her. Now she is dead. Why is this? That's really the way they write his accent, folks. <laughs> I'm just reading the words. Yeah, so this is obviously Hamlet. Anyway, his story is interrupted as the seven dwarfs make their way over and pick a fight with John. Yeah, they say that John was checking out Snow White, and... Let's be honest, he probably was. Yeah. <laughs> As they slip out of the pub, we can see the artful Dodger swiping Jerry's wallet and passing it on to Fagin. Good boy, Dodger. <laughs> also, Jerry says, Ah, pygmies of the imagination! While he's being attacked <laughs> by the dwarves. Right, so they manage to escape from the pub. Jerry says, Thanks for being straight, John. Now do you fancy a chop suey? I could eat a scabby kid's head. Jerry, you've got to cut down on the colorful phrases, or you'll have no chance. They find their way into a Chinese restaurant and eat, but they are unable to pay as the artful Dodger got Jerry's wallet. And John's broke, of course. Always. So the waitress introduces them to her father, Fu Manchu. Yeah, I think it's in narration. Oh, no, it's not. It's, it's not in narration. It's Jerry who says he's an obvious racial stereotype. <laughs> yeah. Now, they have a lovely exchange of dialogue as they decide to get the hell out of the Chinese restaurant. Have you ever jumped through a plate glass window before? Only once. Did it hurt? Yes. That's a really bad sound effect. That was breaking glass? You know, probably not. Okay. Next, they run into a young man in green who offers them the secret of eternal youth. Yeah, I really like the way he's drawn. <laughs> he actually looks very uh, Peter Pan-like. Constantine says, It's a great trick while you're young, kid, but watch out. Old age has a sneaky way of creeping up behind. We hear the sound of a clock looming up behind the young man, along with an arm ending in a hook. 
At first I thought it was two arms ending in a hook, but I think it's actually a shadow. Yeah, yeah, that's one hook hand and a shadow. But, okay, here's the part that I'm confused about. When did Captain Hook eat the clock? It's the alligator who ate the clock. Did Captain Hook eat the alligator? He, he must have done. Or the alligator is just nearby because it's stalking Captain Hook. The alligator Hook. is also following Captain Hook. Man, we watched that NBC musical version so many times. Yeah, kids. that's right. Yeah, Mary Martin. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Now, John suggests that he's too old for this kind of bender and they should just call a cab. Yeah, but a young prostitute named Nancy appears and suggests that they don't get in the cab. And they decide to heed her warning. Right, as the cab pulls up, driven by Bill Sykes. Now, Bill Sykes, just like the Artful Dodger and Fagin, is a character from Oliver Twist. Right. And just like in the book, when he finds out that Nancy has betrayed him, he beats her to death. Right, and lying dead on the ground, she says, I love your Bill. Nancy's unfathomable loyalty to Bill is one of the common critiques of the book. Although in the novel, she does actually betray him to help Oliver. In the musical, she sings the song, As Long As He Needs Me, which has been considered an ode to spousal abuse. Well, I think the thing about the thing about songs in musical theater is that all sorts of ridiculous viewpoints are expressed. <laughs> <laughs> you can't take it literally as, like, advice. Well, okay, that's fair. <laughs> I guess it's a song that expresses her character anyway. So Jerry goes after Bill Sykes and pursues him into the city library. Constantine tries to warn him off, but Holmes appears over Constantine's shoulder. No, you cannot enter there, Mr. Constantine. Not yet. What'll happen to him? He's guilty of disregarding certain prime literary laws. We see Jerry on trial before an assortment of literary characters. Among the characters in this room, Alice, Dracula, and the Invisible Man, as well as ones we've seen before. He has usurped the privilege of fleshly form, usually granted only to those of us who have time-served apprenticeships bound in copyright. Even then, only those who win immortality through enduring fame are permitted to roam at will in the public domain. Sort of, if you believe in magic, clap your hands. Yes, poor Peter, such a tragic lad. You said I couldn't go in there yet. You do not strike me as a stupid man. Tell me, how many writers do you count your friends? Hmm. Where will they take him? Down to the limbo of the forgotten books. The muttering catacombs whose shelves are lined with the mouldering bones of a million minor characters. Maybe to return, or maybe not. And then we see Jerry dragged in front of an assemblage of minor characters and down into the basement of the library. Bye, John. See you in the funny papers. Jesus. And who drags him away? It is Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> yeah, he gets dragged away by Winnie the Pooh. Bump, bump, bump. Down the funny stairs. This is a comic book that ends with a dude being dragged off to oblivion by Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> it sure is. That's the weirdest shit ever. <laughs> well, so here's the funny thing that I thought about when I read this comic book. Like, the first thing that occurred to me. This is really like a precursor to fables, right? You got the secret community of literary characters, the public domain thing. As a rule, Bill Willingham only uses public domain characters in fables. And there's this sort of immortality thing. In this comic, characters have to earn physical existence through enduring fame. In fables, famous characters are much harder to kill. If somebody, like, endures in the public mind, they can't be killed. Huh. That's all pretty interesting stuff. I, I have a question. What's up? 
What's Fables? Fables Who's Bill a, Willingham? <laughs> Fables is a Vertigo comic series written by Bill Willingham, in which a community of fairy tale characters have left their own worlds and started a community in New York City. Nice. It's also one of our candidates for uh, Vertigo's Phase 2, right? A spoiler warning. Oops, didn't mean to let that out of the bag. But yeah, I I don't know if it's just coincidence or if Bill Willingham had read this comic or what, but this is a weird diversion of a Constantine issue. But if you've read Fables, the whole thing is strikingly familiar. Yeah, I thought that was a a fun issue. I am not as familiar with Fables as you are. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I mean, it gets us where we need to go. They blew off Peter Pan and... At the end, a guy gets dragged down some stairs by Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Are you glad to be able to have read a comic book at some point in which a guy is dragged away by Winnie the Pooh? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I didn't know it was what I needed. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, uh, well, shit. That brings us to uh, Hellblazer number 24, The Family Man, uh, written by Jamie Delano, with art by Ron Tyner. And colors by Tom Zuiko. Cover is by Kent Williams. There's a photo of a man with a fly's face. It's been ripped up and taped back together. And it is posted above a rooftop. And under the rooftop is the horrified face of John Constantine. Yeah, and he kind of looks like he's throwing his hands in the air and screaming. There's also a bunch of knives around. And they are in a row, sort of forming a row of teeth over... The photo in the house. Yeah, teeth or fingers. Like a grasping hand of knives. So we've had Hellblazer issues begin in some pretty grim places. There was the guy who ran until he caught fire because he had accidentally sold his soul to demon stockbrokers. I actually thought that was a pretty happy one. That guy was an asshole. (laughs) There was the issue where the young psychic girl was collecting people's fears. Oh, yeah. John Constantine's naked body. (laughs) That's straight out of hell. This one begins in a much brighter place. This is good, right? This is going to stay stay positive. Yeah, I'm sure only good things are coming. So, the lawnmowers are droning contented mantras, we are told. Mm. It's the perfect life of one Bob Cherry. Right, Bob and Helen Cherry, who are very happy with their two kids, Adam and Emma. As long as those darn kids don't find out about abortion. Yeah, Helen is thinking about how she wants the kids to go to bed before the documentary on abortion comes on TV. And we see Helen fill up a sippy cup and carry it up to the playroom. And we cut away as she calls her children's names, Adam, Emma, just before she enters their playroom. Outside, we have Bob working in the garden. A neighbor with a mustache comes up to him and talks for a minute about how happy the cherries are. How are Helen and the kids? Wonderful, thanks. We're very happy. So you've got a new car. Yes, the company decided on Sierras this year. Good family vehicle. We learn that the mustachioed man's wife has entered the cherries in a happy family's competition. Hope you're not offended, old man. No, not at all. We're flattered, George. Flattered. I say, not opening a Turkish bath, are you? Pardon? Bob looks behind him, and the steam from the pot of tea that Helen started is now pouring out the door of the house. I think they call it the kettle. Yeah, I suppose you're right. So Bob investigates the steam, laughing to himself that it's sunny outside but raining in the kitchen. And when he opens the door, he finds his whole family murdered in the playroom. Yeah, and even though it's 
summer outside, an Antarctic wind blows through him, and the irony of that makes him giggle, it says. Yeah, that's what it says. Bob, this is not an appropriate time for laughter. <laughs> Sean, this is not an appropriate time for laughter. Yeah, that I'm, I'm not sure that that irony would make you laugh and i'm not sure he's being awfully poetic in the moment that's all i'm saying yeah also not the first time that we've heard jamie delano mention you know antarctic winds i suppose maybe it is canonically i mean jamie delano really fucking doesn't want to go to the south pole (laughs) don't make him go to there yeah so this is an interesting couple of pages the art style is a bit distinct from what we've seen before and the dialogue is really it's weird man yeah, I think that Ron Tyner is doing kind of a thing on these pages, experimenting with a slightly more cartoony style. Maybe trying to mimic long-running family situation Sunday comic strips. Newspaper comics? Yeah. Yeah, there's kind of a simplified art style, and the characters are generally very, like, blandly good-looking. Yeah, and this isn't the only place in this issue that Tyner does a little artistic experiment. Yeah. The Happy Families competition sounds really tacky, and the family's thoughts... I mean, a couple of interesting things. We have, you know, Bob laughing at the joke of it being raining inside, and we also have Helen thinking we need to put the kids to bed before they learn about abortion. It's interesting that it's it's sort of portraying them as happy, but what's the word? Naively happy? Shallowly happy? It's kind of like Jamie Delano is a little bit irritated with them for being happy families. Yeah, I sort of get the idea that he's maybe trying to satirize suburban life here just a bit. Yeah, I think so. Or satirize the idealistic vision of the nuclear family. Yeah. Well, we cut now to another nuclear family, or at least the patriarch of one, Peter Lucas. This is a place called Dogthorpe, which is in a place called Peterborough, which is presumably in a place called England. Well, yeah. Otherwise, the murderer is doing quite a commute. (laughs) So Peter Lucas also has a happy family. He hears about the Cherry's deaths on the radio, and he turns it off. And the radio attributes the deaths to a murderer who the media is calling the family man. The toast is long cooled in the toaster. His family is stirring upstairs before he realizes that he is not going to work today. That's Peter Lucas, not the family man. Peter Lucas wants to stay close to his loved ones. And this brings us to John Constantine talking to himself. Right, he's holed up in Jehoshaphat P. O'Flynn's big fancy house. I thought he was at Jerry's. Okay. (laughs) He just burned the last of the bread trying to make toast. Right, that's a neat little transition as Peter Lucas's toast has just cooled and John has just burnt his. And he mentions that it's the last of the bread. As we're going to find out here, he's been basically nil on money living off whatever he can find at Jerry's place, and he's just run out of the last of it. Right, yeah. Whether he's still in hiding from the law or not, he's broke and is basically living off Jerry's now-empty house. And he mentions that he hasn't spoken in a week. When he starts cussing himself out, he says his voice sounds strange. Uh, Constantine going a week without speaking is perhaps the most mysterious and unlikely phenomenon that we have yet run across in this series. Right. Musing to himself about the house, John narrates, 
Without Jerry's presence to animate it, it's lost its luster and mystery. Now there's something almost unhealthy about the compulsion that's filled it with junk. Jerry was the sort of bloke you could know for years and still never find out what really made him tick. I suppose that's why I liked him. It's only the people with secrets who are interesting. Speaking of secrets, John found that Jerry has a safe. Yeah, John was planning to sell off some of Jerry's antiques and other collectibles for money. But now that he's found the safe, he's basically committed himself full-time to trying to resist the impulse to crack it open. And he gives up that impulse now. This is a pretty cool bit as he writes a ring of numbers on a piece of paper so that he can scry the combination to the safe. And inside is billions of bucks and some cocaine. Right, 95,000 pounds plus a whole lot of cocaine. And John reminds us once again what we learned last issue about Jerry, that he didn't care what he sold, he just lived for the deal. Yeah, Constantine actually expresses disappointment at finding out that Jerry was into selling cocaine, even though Jerry told him so last episode. That's right. He, he sold uh, cocaine to Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Uh, just at that moment, the doorbell rings and John packs. Shit, it's the law. He flushes the coke down the toilet and then runs to answer the door. A creepy old man who probably isn't Sherlock Holmes is standing there waiting for him. Did you find the character here creepy upon first blush? It struck me that this was sort of a charming older gentleman. You know, I think I wasn't sure right away whether he was supposed to be creepy. But if you look at the bottom left panel on page 38. Yeah, he's doing a little bit of a Kubrick pose there. Head looks, down, eyes up. He looks a little scary there, and he's, and he's grinning. Yeah, he's uh, very well dressed with a nice hat. Sort of a Charles Dance looking guy. Sure. Yeah, John tries to send this guy away, but he's old and he walked from the bus stop, so John feels bad for him and lets him into the house. <laughs> yeah, he says he's been looking after the place while Jerry's away, and the guy jibes him a little bit that he appears to have been negligent. Oh yeah, bit of a storm the other night. Wind brought the chimney down. Yeah, the last time we saw this place, it was in the process of being blown down by the big bad wolf. Right. The gentleman treats himself to some of Jerry's brandy. Watch out! It's not very safe! Safety is a relative concept, Mr. Constantine. It needs risk to define it. <laughs> he says, I see that, like me, you are one of the tormented. Tormented? A thinker, an outsider, a watcher of men. Yeah, I suppose so, in a way. But you are bored with an old man's foolish prattle. And so the gentleman asks for the thing he came for. A periodic but inconsequential trade in trivia. There's an envelope, which he points out, under a black bird statue on the mantle. The black bird, incidentally, is the Maltese falcon. Splendid! Now the day has not been wasted. At my age, they are too few to squander. John hands him the envelope in exchange for a wrapped parcel. The man also gives him a card, which reads, H. Familiaris, Esquire. Well, that's pretty fucking subtle. <laughs> so, the guy decides to use the loo before he leaves, and while he does, Constantine can't resist snooping into his envelope. The envelope contains names, photo, and address for the Lucas family. And how Constantine doesn't figure it out right then and there, I do not know. Well, he hasn't been paying attention to the news, obviously. Oh, yeah, I guess. He was underwater in Scotland for a healthy portion of the last three weeks. <laughs> anyway, the gentleman comes back. John hands him his hat and envelope and sends him on his way. 
So he starts making a plan to get the hell out of there with the money. Right. Decides it's too risky to stick around, what with Jerry's criminal contacts possibly dropping by at any time. That old boy was harmless enough. But what if the bloody coke dealers turn up? No, I think I'd better just take the money and run. But first he gets curious and he picks up Jerry's address book slash ledger. Now there's a cat watching him from outside the window as he does. I think this is Jerry's cat. It got out when Constantine threw the doors open because he had burned the toast. Yeah, that's, and that's right. And it hasn't found its way back in yet. Yeah. Now, as John checks out the ledger, he has sort of a flashback to various weird times that he's had with Jerry. Here's Jerry drunkenly, I don't know, singing or shouting or something on the edge of a bridge. Yeah, he's looks like he's sort of dancing on the railings. Yeah, and this panel of a hapless John kind of smiling at a policeman who's trying to scold him as Jerry is all the way. I also want to mention that in Jerry's ledger, you can see such names as Lord Lucan, Sinn Féin, John DeLorean, the Mossad, St. Germain, Papa Midnight. Yeah, Papa Midnight, who we met all the way back in Hellblazer number one. And John basically explains through this flashback that he sort of modeled his own larger-than-life character-ness on Jerry. <laughs> that reminds me of Quoth, you know, from the Kingkiller Chronicles. Right. Who, like, intentionally made himself a larger-than-life figure from an age far earlier than he had any reasonable expectation to think that he'd be good at anything. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, he did uh, He did get kicked out of the University in Emory at a younger age than most are admitted. I don't think that that can actually be true anymore. At this point. Uh, yeah. Like, like, I think we're getting involved in a tangent here. So by the end of the second book, he hasn't been kicked out yet. And he's, you know... He's about 17, right? Yeah, like, he's not at a younger age than most of his friends there were when they began. Uh, at least that doesn't seem to be obviously true. Yeah. Well, it, he, he bullshits all the time, so I guess that's not a big deal. <laughs> Now, don't pick on Patrick Rothfuss. He was dragged down the stairs by Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Jerry's character design was actually, like, very Patrick Rothfuss-like. And pretty awesome. John goes on. He had a verve, a recklessness, which I admired. Emulated, if I'm honest. He was a wild man, and it was hard to see through that. But once he did, there was a pathos there, a vulnerability that made you love him. Yeah, he goes on to say that Jerry had an emptiness inside. An emptiness that made the way to be filled by an addiction. And Jerry's addiction was the trade. Right, deals. The deal. So John is peeking into the ledger, and he wonders about a repeat customer named R.H. All that's written is R.H., but he's paid a lot of money a number of times. Yeah, John says that all the really big sums in the ledger are by his name. He paid more than the Mossad. And as he's looking at the ledger, a piece of paper slips from inside, and it's an ad for the Happy Families competition. There's a list of entrants, many of whom are crossed off. And in fact, the last name that's crossed off is the Lucases of Dogthorpe, and above those, the Cherries. I also want to point out that as John is snooping around the house, we see that Jerry keeps a number of life-size statues of naked women all over the house. And so throughout this sequence, they appear to be watching him as he's spying on Jerry people seem to be spying on him. It's kind of a cool effect. Well, and we saw the cat spying on him. I'm not sure that this is multiple statues or maybe just one statue that we're seeing mm -hmm. multiple times. But in any case, yeah, he finds Jerry's diary and starts going through it. 
And we realize at this point, of course, that the Happy Families competition is a farce created by Jerry himself to get names to sell to the family man. Yeah, well, you're getting a little ahead of us, but yeah. As John reads up on RH, we see the cat stalking birds. And it, the arch style shifts again here to something a little bit more classical, I guess. Okay. For this sort of semi-nature scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The grinning cat watching the birds. And finally striking as in the diary, the key development occurs. The short version of RH's story, RH is apparently a SCUS video maker. I'm not entirely sure what that means. But he wanted a souvenir from a serial killer, and Jerry got him several. Then he decided he wanted something from a still active serial killer. Jerry was terrified, but also kind of enthralled. He eventually made contact with the family man. They made an arrangement. The family man gives Jerry souvenirs from his kills, and Jerry provides what a serial killer needs. Victims! Oh, Jerry, 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 you bastard! Just then, the phone rings. It's R.H. I want to point out here that this is a fairly decent drawing of a cat. (laughs) That's been a while coming. (laughs) Just then, the phone rings. It's R.H. He's after his parcel from Homo Familiaris. The name on the card. John just hangs up on him, realizing at that moment that he handed the address to the old man. Not wanting to open the parcel, but unable to help himself. We get almost a full page here. Oh, I guess it is a full page of John opening the parcel and finding what's inside. It's the sippy cup from earlier. And as he opens the sippy cup, it spills all over his hands and shirt. Sometimes you can feel a part of you just curl up and die. You withdraw into a corner, whimpering, detached from your remorselessly continuing existence, unwilling to believe that the blood could be on your hands. The sippy cup is full of blood. So John burns the house down. Yep, and I think he burns the money with it, too. He's doing something with the money. Okay, he makes it rain into this duffel bag right here. Okay. And we don't see him carry it out, so yeah, I guess he burned most of the money. Yeah, Constantine has realized that he has basically sealed the doom of the Lucas family by handing their address over to the old man, who we now know as the family man. We also see him take a big swig of rum here as he throws it on the fire. Yeah, and he talks a little bit about how he'd like to go help them out. Right. Dogthorpe, Peterborough, I'll go there. I'll try to put it right. I'll do the best I can, but in my frozen heart, I know that I'm too late. And that somewhere, someone's world explodes. And as John, cool guys don't look at explosions out of the house, the cat runs by him with its tail on fire. (coughs) Bit of a black physical comedy there. Peter Lucas is contented. He's had a nice day today. He's glad he didn't go to work. It's good to have his family close around him. It's too easy to get wrapped up in work and forget why you're doing it. Ding dong. I'll go, love. June, Mark, and Lucy. They were what made it all worthwhile. It may not suit everyone, but he's glad to be a family man. He opens the door and... Good evening, sir. I wonder if you could assist me. Oh, it's the family man. That's creepy. Creepy as fuck! Yeah, so that was an interesting issue. Our introduction to the family man is mostly without the presence of the family man. Yeah, I mean, we see enough of him for him to make himself memorable. Yeah, he registers as a presence in the story. And it's interesting that, you know, we don't see him commit crimes. We see his crimes. 
when John interacts with him, he's just a charming old guy. Right. And that's perhaps the creepiest detail about his portrayal in the story so far. Did you find this issue kind of slow? I can't complain, compared to other sort of stage-setting issues. Yeah, I guess if we compare it to past Constantine issues, it's not remarkably slow. You know, the kind of somewhat uneventful expository issue has not been that rare in this run. But I just couldn't help thinking, like, that I could imagine a comic book doing everything that this does in, like, half the time and, you know, having ten pages left over for uh, a bit more action, a Mm. bit more, you know, doing something about it. (laughs) Yeah, at this point we have the beginning of the story. As we've been introduced to the family man and his crimes, and we have a solid reason for now for John to go after him. Uh, And that, I thought, was very effectively done, the slow burn reveal of John's complicity in handing the family man his next set of victims and the uh, the blood that spills out of the sippy cup over a full page of agonizing over opening the, the cup. I do love that that was a full page. Yeah. There's a bunch of good clues mm-hmm. and a bunch of good, like, moody foreshadowing going on yeah. in this issue. I won't deny that. The problem is just that we figure it out way before Constantine does. Yeah, I mean, that's probably true. Given that that's the title of the story and this all has to be going somewhere, once the man appears, he's almost certainly the family man. And then Homo Familiaris is a really obvious clue. Yeah. As regards the sippy cup, I just want to point out, like, Jamie Delano has had a facility for little continuity nods like this over the course of his run. You know, we see the sippy cup at the beginning of the issue and it doesn't seem to mean anything. And then it comes back at the end. I remember we called attention as well to the story logic surrounding Mrs. Talbot having taken all of the aspirin and so John gets knocked in the head and then he has no aspirin and he goes out to get some more aspirin. Yeah, that's true. And I think what that points to is maybe sort of a larger trend in Jamie Delano's storytelling that he clearly doesn't consider it a weakness of the story to have us figure it out before Constantine does. Right. That is the way that he tells these kind of stories. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true, and we saw that in Fear Machine as we have a very clear moment of realizing uh, that Webster is the arch-villain and what his agenda is. And then a somewhat rushed scene an issue or two later as, you know, the Hippie War Council, as the hippies quickly figure everything out and get it on the table. Yeah, that's true. Should we talk about Ron Tyner as the new artist? Sure. This style is definitely distinct from what we've seen before. There's a very drawn quality to Tyner's work on this series. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. He draws a somewhat more solid and happy-looking, often downright mischievous John Constantine. It's sort of hard to imagine his John Constantine, you know, really looking like he's been through hell, which is the way that John Ridgway often drew him. Mm -hmm. He's a much more leading man here than we've seen him a lot of the time. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Which is not to say that he can't be, like, expressive of negative emotions as well. That page where he opens the sippy cup put Tyner's character drawing skills on display. Yeah. He also works a lot with the environment of Jerry's big weird house. And infuses that with a lot of cool detail and a sort of mysterious air. 
Yeah, and that's something that the slower pacing of this issue allows you to do that would be much harder to do in 10 pages. Mm -hmm. Now it's time for a segment I like to call, Hey Sean, Read This, where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. This week we're doing something a little different. I'm going to have Sean read the Swamp Thing Winter Special. Hey, this says DC Universe on it. Uh, yeah, it's actually not published by Vertigo, but there's precedent. We read the Sandman special when it came out, which was not under the Vertigo imprint. Yeah, that's right. But Swamp Thing is definitely a Vertigo character, so uh, I'm, I'm grandfathering it in. All right, do you want to give us some credits for this issue? The A story in the issue, I know, was written by Tom King with art by Jason Fabuk. And the B story was written by Len Wein with art by Kelly Jones. All right, let me check this out. Okay, so we got an A story here. This is called The Talk of the Saints by Tom King. And that refers to the fact that it begins and ends with a radio broadcaster talking about the New Orleans Saints. Right. Playing football. Against the Gotham Knights. Yeah, well, <laughs> so it's... my first reaction was, but the Saints are a real team, right? Because the Gotham Knights are not. Right, you have to make it a little bit comic booky. Yeah, but it makes sense because I think Swamp Thing lives in the Saints market. Right. Swamp Thing lives in Houma, Louisiana. Right. Now, this is basically the last of a starring Swamp Thing. There's a bunch of snow that comes in and takes over his swamp. And there's a kid that he's trying to move around with and, and protect this kid. And the kid keeps telling him there's a snow monster and we have to not fight the snow monster and we have to fight the snow monster. He's kind of mercurial on that point. They go around for a long time. They survive against various threats. Swamp Thing fights a bear. Swamp Thing fights a bear. <laughs> yeah, he sure does. And there's also like a scraggly hunter guy like The Last of Us, except... Eventually, Swamp Thing figures out that he's getting really gaunt and weak, and that takes years to happen, and he realizes that the kid is the source of the unnatural snows. Right, because the kid would be dead in all this cold by now. Right, and he must be... He realizes he must be choosing to forget that the kid is the monster all this time. There's a double-page spread here where he says, you are the monster to the kid. That's very effective. Yeah, but... He realizes that he must be choosing to forget every day so that he can keep protecting the kid, and he has to not do that, and to save the world, he has to kill this kid. Sort of, except it begins and ends in the same place, with the same radio broadcast going on, even though years of post-apocalyptic winter happened. Yeah, that's right. So, it's kind of a puzzle. Yeah. It's a bit like of a puzzle of an story, or... And then we end on this note as Swamp Thing sort of realizes that since he had to kill a kid to save the world, he's a monster too. And then the radio broadcaster is saying, Newsflash, people. There's no such things as monsters. They don't exist, all right? All you do, that's on you. You want to blame someone? Look in a mirror, people. What do you see? There's nothing to be afraid of, okay? The only monster out there is you. Yeah, which is not really a logical position to take if you live in the DC universe. Uh, oh, because there's definitely monsters? <laughs> yeah, I mean... Fucking Solomon Grundy is in this comic book. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, so we should talk about this second story. This is now this is Len Wein's last Sandman story. He was writing at the time of his death, right? And and it is presented here without dialogue because it had been unfinished. Yeah, Len Wein, of course, and uh, Bernie Wrightson, the creators of Swamp Thing, both died in 2017. Len Wein was actually working on a new Swamp Thing number one at the time of his passing, and it is presented here. 
Okay, so Swamp Thing's hanging out in his swamp. There's a neat little moment here. A bird takes a twig off of Swamp Thing, and Swamp Thing chases it, but he sees that it's using the twig to build a nest, and he sort of forgives the bird. So he's, you know, uh, grumpy and territorial, but basically a nice creature. Right. Solomon Grundy breaks into a house and steals a baby. Yeah. Uh, it is specifically Gold Manor, the home of Cyrus Gold, which is to say Solomon Grundy before he died. Oh, okay. I didn't pick up on that, but that makes sense. Yeah, and then there's a guy who Grundy beats up when he's escaping who ends up in the hospital and he has a conversation with Swamp Thing in the form of his bedside plant. I don't think that that is supposed to be the guy who gets beat up in the process of the home invasion. I think that's supposed to be Matthew Cable waking up from his long coma. Oh, okay. This is Cable is alive again. Right. After years of being uh, Dream's Raven in the Dream Realm in the Sandman comics. Yeah, some kind of retcon took place. I'm not sure when. Yeah, I think he had definitely died, but okay. So then we have a scene in the Homo Police Department where Swamp Thing is public enemy number one. There's some detectives planning to get him. Yeah. There's a fellow in a coat here that I don't know. I saw the coat and my first thought was Constantine, but he's dark-haired. Oh, that's still Cable. Okay, this is Matthew Cable going back to work, except he used to work for the FBI, right? Yeah, and now he's opening a private detective. You can read uh, Len Wein's outline. I did not do that. Okay. So it was a little less clear to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is perhaps being unfair, but anyway. Jim Gordon briefly investigating the missing baby. Here we have some criminals on a train and... Really nice art by Kelly Jones in this story. Yeah, this is really terrific. Uh, Solomon Grundy punches these two guys off a train. Then there's a part where Swamp Thing is chasing two guys in swamp boats. And this part is pretty rad. Yeah. As, uh, one of them, he's basically water skiing on the back of this swamp boat by some tendrils while the guy is shooting a shotgun at him. I guess these are criminals that he's chasing. Yeah. Because this is just otherwise a really weird random scene. The guy does a sudden stop. Swamp Thing flies into the propeller on the swamp boat and is ground up. But he can come back from that. And he does. And then... They are about to shoot him some more when Batarangs come in and disable these guys. Yeah. And on the last page, we got Batman. Yeah. Batman Swamp Thing crossover. The goddamn Batman. And Kelly Jones is still great at drawing Batman. Really long ears, but really impressive physical presence. Oh, yeah. That's a dark knight. That's a good Batman. So, yeah. So, what did you think of this issue? Or this winter special? Well, so, now I want to ask the question... Is this, like, an annual that they were planning to put together already, or is this something they put together specifically to publish the last Len Wein Swamp Thing story? I think it's more the latter. Okay. So the Tom King story was kind of written to to have a, a full A story for the comic. Yeah. Well, and I think that Tom King really wanted to write a Swamp Thing story, mm-hmm. so that might be the other reason. Yeah. Had we been talking about a rumor that Tom King was going to get Swamp Thing? I would have to check on that by going oh, back to... Oh, you know what? No, I'm thinking of Mr. Miracle, which he is writing now. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that's not a rumor at all. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that book is ongoing. That is confirmed. Well, actually, I guess it's not ongoing. It's on hiatus now. Okay. Between issues six and seven of a 12-part series. Uh, but yeah, I think that Swamp Thing number one, uh, sadly, looked really, really interesting. Batman, Swamp Thing crossover, Swamp Thing versus uh, Solomon Grundy, both cool ideas, and the art was pretty fantastic. Yeah, I really enjoyed the Tom King story as well, although it's kind of uh, it's kind of hard to fit into a continuity, but that's okay. I mean, continuity is kind of a 
kind of a cream filling as far as comic book stories are considered. Well, I got the impression that it could sort of take place any time, since after it's over, the green sends him back through time anyway. Oh, is that is that your read on it? Yeah. Okay, so the apocalypse happened, but then the green sends Swamp Thing back to when it all began, once he reestablishes contact. I believe so. Okay, that's a read. Tom King, man. Some, this is actually the second Tom King story that I've read in about two months involving people dying alone in the snow. <laughs> what was the other one? Oh, uh, his Hanukkah story in the Christmas special. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, well, that guy wasn't alone. He had a Nazi with him. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just as bad if you think of that. If not worse. <laughs> Um, All right, so if you're a fan of the character, or if you just want to pick up uh, Len Wein's last work on the character, definitely worth a look. Yeah, and of course, like, you know, losing out on this Swamp Thing series that could have been is, of course, not the only reason that Len Wein's passing is a shame. You know, Mm -hmm. he created Wolverine, a bunch of other great characters, you know, so. Okay, so. So, what are you looking forward to in terms of this story arc? Well, they've got to stop the family man, don't they? All right. (laughs) He's a son of a bitch. Well, well, let me put it this way. This is, I think this is going to be a looser story arc, more perhaps akin to the first story arc we saw than to the Fear Machine. What are you, uh, what are your feelings about that? Are you hoping to see something tighter and more action driven or is sort of a return to the detective stories with an overarching plot something that you're interested in? Well, I think it worked really well for the Fear Machine to have it so intensely focused. Yeah. You know, we don't really have subplots during those issues. Mm -hmm. Everything that happened across that nine-issue stretch is related to the same story. But you can't run a book like that forever, you know? Right, yeah. Eventually, you need, like, one-offs. You need A-plots and B-plots, you know, where some stuff serves a greater story arc and other stuff is just self-contained so i think you know in terms of the rhythm of this book it's kind of good to get back to that okay okay i am hoping that we see a bit of this story perhaps from the family man's point of view i think it's a real sort of cat and mouse story is going to require two perspectives if we see it entirely from john's side the family man himself might become something of a boring unattainable goal yeah that's a good point I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what Grant Morrison does with the book next week. That's right. Our next Hellblazer episode, a pair of stories about probably nuclear weapons by Grant Morrison. But first, join us next week for Preacher, Rumors of War. Hey, if you like our show, why don't you check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do it via at vertiguys on twitter or vertiguys at gmail.com that's right and i'm at blank cast sean on twitter and we also have a facebook page facebook.com slash vertiguys we would love to hear from you get some listener questions which we'd love to answer also if you listen to our show on the apple podcasts app or on itunes and if you could leave us a review or a positive rating that would really help us out yeah that would really help people to find the show But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. Go, sun, go down to the water.